But I am very glad you're here. I'm Stephen, the pastor here. And um, uh, who here is a planner? Like when you, when you think of a vacation, you want to plan out what you're going to do each day and you want to milk every day for all it's worth. A few of us, who hears the other, you're just like, or just go with the flow. You're more the go with the flow and you're fine being late for absolutely everything, right? That's a few of us there. Okay, some of us are in the middle there. I'm definitely a planner. I plan out every hour of my work week. Um, and because I, I'm all about like efficiency, I've read way too many books on time management, on production, and on, you know, here's my morning routine. And, and so sometimes I, I get so locked into that that I'm just moving too quickly. And, and something you notice with the pace of Jesus is he always walked slowly, right? And he always made time for the people around him. He was never in a rush. And, and there's things in our lives, even for those of us that are planners, there's things in our lives that we're never too busy for, right? Like we'll always make interruptions if it's something that's worth interrupting. So even when Katie and I go on a road trip, we view it very differently. And we were just talking uh, just last night about the driving to Nashville in a few weeks and how, uh, you know, do we want to take our time or do we just want to get there? And, and for me, I am somebody, when I see the GPS ETA, I see it as a challenge, and I, I'm racing against the ETA. And so I'm like, where can I shave that off? And so if we need to stop for gas, I'm like, oh, the seven minutes we just gained has been lost now. And she's like, why does it matter? What is the rush? It's like, it, because this robot needs to lose. That's what the rush is. And so for me... Like, when I go on a road trip, like, I want to keep going, and, uh, and, and Katie's like, what, what is the rush? Let's take our time, let's enjoy it, which is obviously a much healthier pattern, um, but there is one place that we would always agree that uh, when, we were, when we would road trip throughout Texas when we lived there, there's one place, and some of you guys know where it is, some of you do not, but you need to, um, the largest convenience store in the world um, is in Texas, and it's a line of convenience stores called Bucky's. Has anybody ever heard of Bucky's here before? I'm so glad I get to be the one to tell you about this. Okay, so Bucky's. This is this is a portion of the inside. Bucky's, first of all, is known for its restrooms. Like, if you need to go to the restroom, you you think. When is the nearest Bucky's? 45 minutes away, I can hold it. Because each individual stall is tiled to the, the ceiling, and you have an ind- it's like it's like a studio apartment. And so even if you don't have to go to the restroom, you're like, I'm just going to go there and meditate for a while because it's so relaxing, right? And uh, you see, that's just like the soda. They have like 16 flavors of Icy, which for any teenager, every road trip we took, the teenagers, uh, you know, when I was a youth pastor, they would spend all of their cash on day one at Bucky's, they drop like 50 bucks because they have so many snacks. So Bucky's has like a fresh bakery, so you can get fresh cake balls, or you can get an entire wedding cake there. I don't know why you'd want to, but you can. Um, you can get like a brisket sandwich. You can get a turkey leg. But then they have a whole other section that I didn't even put a, a photo of. That's shopping. It's like an entire. It's like an entire mall. Like if you need a swimsuit, you're like, I need a swimsuit on this road trip, and I didn't pack it. You can buy all of your clothes there. That's Bucky's. So it didn't matter how busy we were or how behind we were. If we're like, hey, we're already an hour late for that wedding, but there's a Bucky's. We got to stop for like 40 minutes, and we'd go in. It has 140 pumps. No joke, 140 pumps at a Bucky's, and they're so strategically placed in Texas that between every major city that you road trip, there's at least one Bucky's. So if you're going from Austin to Houston or Houston to Dallas or Dallas to San Antonio, there's at least one, and it's right off the highway, and you see the signs for like miles and miles and miles. By the time you get there, it's like, we've got to go buy a t-shirt right now. 
And so, like, there's just certain places that no matter how busy you are, you are going to make interruptions for. There's certain people that no matter how busy you are, you are going to make space for in your schedule. There's certain things that no matter how in debt you are, you are never going to cut back on that thing, right? So when we think of our time and how busy we are, it's, it's relative, when we think of finances and, and how poor we may feel or how closely we hold on to our finances, it's all relative because it ultimately comes down to what we prioritize and what, what matters the most to us. And we're in a series right now called The Goat, the greatest of all time, and we're looking at the different aspects of Jesus' ministry. What are the things that he did better than anybody else? And in return, he's asking us to do the same. And this week, we're going to look at something that truly is at the heart of everything that Jesus did, that he was the greatest giver, that he gave, that he modeled this idea of generosity for us, and he calls us to do the same. And what you're going to see, just a sneak peek, is no matter how busy Jesus was, no matter how surrounded by people he was, the social pressures that he felt, he was never too busy. And the people in front of him felt valued, and he always walked slow enough to notice them. And it's just a different pace than I think most of us walk through life. And so we're going to look at a moment in Jesus' ministry in John chapter 2 that's very early on, very early on in Jesus' ministry. In fact, this is the very first miracle that Jesus ever performs publicly when he turns water into wine. And at this point, um, nobody has seen him perform a miracle in fact, he hasn't even finished recruiting like his 12 disciples. He's only got about six of them right now. He's still hanging out a lot with his family. So he hasn't even fully left. Like there's a moment where he slowly leaves his family and, and he's now just doing full-time ministry. That hasn't happened yet. He's still kind of in the same area. He's got his, his six and he's at a wedding and his mom is about to ask him something. Um, and it's just bad timing. Like, how many of you have been asked to help with something, and you're just not in the mood to do it, right? Like, we know that bad time. I remember when I was over Christmas break, um, it's that week after Christmas when a lot of us, you just want to kind of be lazy, you know? Like, you save up a few. If you're a teacher, like, you're already off, or, or maybe you just save up extra vacation days, and it's like you kind of view Christmas to New Year's as just like a slow week. So that's how it was, and Katie asked me if I would help uh, one of her friends uh, move, and I'm like, I will pray that God finds somebody else to move, but I don't want to, right? Because it's just bad timing, right? And you're just in a different mood. You just want to be lazy. I love football, and I just wanted to sit around and watch all the college football games. So it's just a bad timing thing. It wasn't that I didn't want to help. It's just, oh, I'm in a different mood right now, right? So that's what you're about to see with Jesus is he's asked to help at the wrong time. And here's how, here's how it goes down. John chapter 2, verse 3. So the, the wine supply ran out during the wedding festivities. And just real quick, just so you know, back then, you know, I know we think weddings are so over the top now. A lot of us do. We're like, I can't believe how, how big we go. In, in the Jewish culture, weddings usually lasted up to a week long. Okay, so this is a few days into this wedding where they're getting together and they're partying. And if you run out of food, if you run out of wine, like it's, it's almost like a, people are shamed right? So the groom has run out of wine. Here's what he said. So Jesus's mother told him they have no more wine, and they're a few days into this wedding festivity. And he's telling, she's telling this to Jesus. Hey, they're out of wine. 
And now here's the deal. Mary obviously knows, like we know from the Christmas story early on, Mary knew that there's something special about Jesus, that he's the Messiah. But at this point, he hasn't performed any miracles. Like she may have seen some things happen in her household, but we don't really know about them. We don't know a ton about like what happened between 12 and 30 for Jesus. I'm sure she saw some things on display, but up to this point, he hasn't. So part of it is she knows that Jesus is able to fix things, but also part of it, just from a practical standpoint, is Mary is the mother of seven kids and Jesus is the oldest. And we do know historically that Joseph, Mary's husband, would have died at this point. And, and so Jesus is kind of the man of the house. So when she's going to Jesus, part of her is going like, hey, I know who you are. You got to do something. But it's also like, you're the oldest son. You got to step up and help. You're the man of the house. So she says, hey, they have no more wine. And she doesn't say anything else. She's just, they've got no more wine. And then here's how he responds. Dear woman, that's not our problem. Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. Now we laugh because we're like, wow, Jesus is supposed to be nicer than that, right? Now, when it says dear woman, it almost comes off to us as disrespectful, right? Like this is his mother. That's not at all how it would have come off in that time. That's just how the English translation gives it to us. But what he was saying, he was addressing her with a Greek word that almost said, ma'am, my time's not come. Like this isn't the right time for me. So he's still addressing her with respect, but not with the same affection that he would his mother. And that's actually a really interesting point, because at this point in Jesus's life and in his ministry, he's beginning to transition. He's no longer acknowledging her as a motherly figure, because he's, he's transitioning out of son mode and into Messiah mode. It's the same word he uses um, years later when he's on the cross, and he acknowledges her again. He says, dear woman. It's not that she's no longer his mother, but now he's moving out of being her child, and now he's the Messiah for everybody. So it's just a different perspective that he is taking. And so what he's saying here is this. When he's saying, my time has not yet come, he's saying, I'm now focused on my father's plan. And this is a baffling moment for us because we're like, what do you... Jesus, you're here to help people. But he's saying, I have a bigger picture and a bigger timeline in mind. And what he's laser-focused on from here on out for his story is everything that leads to the hour when he's going to lay down his life for all of us. So in other words, he's saying, I, I can help you, but it isn't necessarily working for my greater purpose. He's saying, the things that you're concerned about, like making sure there's enough wine at a wedding so that the groom, who might be a friend of yours, might not be embarrassed, like, I'm not concerned about those things. I'm concerned about more important, bigger things. I'm concerned about what God has put me on this earth to do. So what we're about to see is a very unique miracle because Jesus is almost telling us on the front end that this miracle does not accomplish anything in his ministry. This is like an interruption to his ministry, that he, he would be doing it only to help the groom and to help the people there. But it's different from like a healing. Like when he heals somebody, that's a part of his ministry. He's come and he's rescued them out of a life of, of hurt and pain and into a new life. And it's symbolic of what he's calling He's calling all of us into, but turning water into wine, yes, it's a display of his power, and it's providing for the people there, but having some extra wine in a wedding, that doesn't really accomplish his purpose and his vision. So he's, he's almost doing it to help them, but it's not necessarily for his vision. Does that make sense? So it's, it's unique in that sense. It reminds me of when I was a youth pastor, there was one event when Brandon and I were in Texas. We led a student ministry I mean, it was a fairly large student ministry, though for Texas it was kind of mediocre because all these churches are huge there and you just trip over them everywhere. So this was a student ministry that had about 200 teenagers that came every single week. 
And uh, there was one event that I would tell our student staff, hey, this doesn't accomplish anything for our vision or our mission, but we're still going to do it. And it was what we called Senior Recognition Sunday. <laughs> and we would always kind of like, oh, do we really have to do this? Because it took so much work, and it really wasn't accomplishing the vision of helping students to grow closer to Jesus and to help make disciple-making disciples. It was just a chance to honor the, the graduating seniors. And so we did it for the, it really wasn't for the seniors, it was for who? It was for the parents of the seniors. And so the parents would start to email us months in advance, and they said, hey, I want to print a cardboard cutout of my senior and put it in the lobby so we can honor them. I'm like, this is just weird. We're not doing any of that. But they, they would get so excited about this, and we'd have like a breakfast, and we'd have a whole thing where seniors would come up and share. There was nothing wrong with it. There was nothing wrong with the event at all, but it was kind of an interruption to all the other things we were trying to do, right? There's things in your job, there's things in your life that you're like, this doesn't necessarily help accomplish what God's put on me, but I'm still going to help. So it's important we know that because this first miracle is actually an interruption to Jesus's agenda. It's not a part of his agenda, but because Jesus is so giving and generous with his time, he's okay temporarily stepping away from his busy agenda and important plan to help them out that no matter how busy Jesus was, he always allowed time for interruptions. Jesus was willing to be inconvenienced. And man, I feel like maybe one of the biggest idols in today's time is busyness, that we don't allow for interruptions like how Jesus did, right? I mean, if we're just being honest with ourselves, now, some of us, we're kind of on the non-planning side, and we're like, no, I got all the time in the world. Let's hang. But, but there's others like me that I struggle with this because I'm thinking all the things that I need to get done. But Jesus was so fully present in the moment, and, and that's like a reflection of his generosity because he knew that his slowing down was significant for someone else. In fact, some of his most significant moments in ministry were kind of interruptions to what he was doing. Like he was going from one town to the, to the other, and then there'd be this interruption. Like the woman at the well, that was an interruption. That wasn't something that just he, he'd kind of planned for. That was an interruption that came that we significantly talk about over and over. Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Jesus wasn't even there. He was in another town, and he was brought there, and then he raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus calming the storm. He's not with the disciples, but they're worried and they're panicked, so he goes to them. He calms the storm storm. He settles them down. He knew interruptions were important, so he still leans into this moment. So here's how Mary responds. His mother told the servants, and these are his disciples, do whatever he tells you, which by the way, what a wonderful posture for us to have towards Jesus. Like a lot of times when we pray, we say, God, I'm asking for your help, but I almost wish I could pray better and say, God, I'm asking for your help, but do whatever you want because you know what's best. And maybe sometimes we're praying for the right situation, but from the wrong angle. And we get frustrated because we're not praying the right prayer. Like maybe we just need to do a better job of praying like how Mary would have. Like, God, this is the area I'm most stressed about. So do whatever you want because you know what's best. Because I can try to come up with a solution, but you've probably got a better one. So she's not expecting Jesus to perform a miracle necessarily. She doesn't know that Jesus is about to just make water turn into wine. He's just saying, hey, I know that if I put this situation in your hands, you're going to handle it better than if I did. That's what prayer is. It's not saying, hey, God, guess what? I come up with a solution. I just need you to check the box and sign it, and we got it. We're good. We're good. No, it's saying, God, here's the solution. You probably have a better solution than I do. That's what prayer is. It's much more hands-off than we want to make it. So standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. 
Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Here's what it means. And I'm going to show you a picture like, of what these jars would have looked like. Um, these, these would never have been used for wine or even drinking water out of. Like these were ceremonial, almost decorative. They were used, but they, were, they weren't ones that outside of the Levites and the priests who would have used it and the servants who would have poured water out to wash your feet or the, the priests would go over and wash their hands out of it. Like they weren't, you would never drink something out of it because that's like the dirty recycled water from your hands or your feet that are sitting there. So you're more looking at those on display on the side of the room. Okay, these are the jars. He says, let's use those. It's almost like when I grew up, my my parents had uh, in the kitchen, I say my parents, it was my mom. My dad didn't have anything to do with this decision, but uh, there were decorative plates from like different areas of Europe. And some of you may have something like this in your house or, you know, fine china or like a bowl from the Renaissance or something. Like, you don't just pull that down and say, I'm going to have some soup. Get the Renaissance bowl. Let's fill that up, right? It's a decorative plate. It would have been weird if I had a pizza party with some friends. I said, we're out of plates. Use the one from 1840 Spain. Let's bring that one down, right? It's a decorative plate. It's not meant to be eaten on. It's got another purpose. That's what these jars are. They're not meant to be drinking out of. They're not meant to be filled with wine and then poured out of it. But Jesus points to those for a very specific reason. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Verse 7, Jesus told the servants, fill those jars with water. Now, that was probably a little bit of a tense moment because they know what's in those jars. It's like the dirty water. Are you tracking? Like, this is the recycled water here. But he did that on purpose to prove a point, that, that his, he's, he's almost letting them know, and they may not have ever connected the dots, but we can because we know all of Jesus' story, that he's showing that there's a new covenant that is being established. And it's not about the outside and the decorative jar. It's about what's happening on the inside. It's not about cleaning the outside so that it looks nice for the room. It's about the cleansing that's happening on the inside. That's what his new covenant is about. It's not about our outside actions as much as what's happening in our hearts. And that's why he even, his very first sermon, he says, you've heard don't do this action, but I'm saying it's even a sin if it takes place in your heart because I'm more concerned about what's happening here on the inside. That's why he says years later, and they may not have ever made this connection, but years later, he's, he's rebuking the Pharisees, the same people who would have been in the room mocking him at this moment and saying, don't use those. Those are the sacred jars. Here's what he says in Matthew 23. I'm just going to jump ahead for just a moment to, to kind of reiterate this point. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're filthy. You're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first wash the inside of the cup, because that's what we care more about, and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. See, Jesus wants to clean our hearts the inside of the cup. So that's what he's going to show us in here is he can take the dirty water in our hearts and he can turn it into fine wine. There's a lot of symbolism in this story, okay? So it goes on. The jars had been filled, verse 8. He said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. That'd be like the Jewish wedding planner back in the day, right? So the servants followed his instructions. Now this part is really interesting because the disciples, the servants, fully trusted Jesus here, didn't they? Like, he didn't say really what he was going to do. Mary says, hey, they're out of wine. He says, okay, just fill those with water and then take them to him. That's all he kind of says in this narrative, and they fully trust him. Now, imagine if you're a servant and, and you go to the master of ceremonies, like, you're out of wine, okay, and then you fill a ceremonial jar with water and you hand it to them. 
they're going to be like, what is wrong with you, right? Like, did you drink the rest of the other wine and you're going a little kooky? Because we asked for wine and you filled up a ceremonial jar that's full of dirty water with more water. But they fully trusted Jesus here. Even with as, as, as bizarre or as bold of a call that Jesus had, they fully trusted him. They had faith in him. Even though they hadn't really seen him perform a lot of these miracles, they just had this, this trust in him, this posture towards him. Verse 9, when the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew that it was Jesus, he called the bridegroom over. He said, a host always serves the best wine first. By the way, he doesn't give any credit to Jesus here, does he? He takes all the credit. Then, when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine, but you have kept the best until now. Totally takes credit for Jesus' miracle here. What it's showing is, is it's not only, Jesus doesn't just turn dirty water into fine wine, it's the best, and it shows what he can do in our lives, that he can take even like the mundane, gross, the parts of our lives we want to avoid, and he can, he can renew them into something beautiful. And that's what, he, that's what he's seeing here. And the heart behind this interruption is that Jesus was willing to be radically generous with his time and allow for interruptions to help other people. Jesus was the greatest giver of all time. He was the goat. He was the good goat, the greatest giver of all time. And it's, it's actually, like, I've never looked at this story from this story. I've heard this before. Who's heard this story, the water to the wine story? A lot of us have heard it before. But I never really thought about it as, as like, he did all of that just to help them. It really wasn't for his ministry. It doesn't mean God didn't use it, and it didn't mean it wasn't a display of his power, but it was an interruption. It's like, this is my job description. Okay, I'll help you for a minute, but here's my job description. And it just shows just how generous Jesus was, how he modeled generosity for us, because being generous is being interruptible with our lives. That if we're truly being generous with our lives, it means that, that we're saying, I'm going to allow the Holy Spirit to interrupt me to interrupt my plans, to interrupt the things that I think are best, because he often has different plans than I do. Like, I'm going to allow God to interrupt me with new opportunities, with interruptions throughout my week. I'm going to allow God to interrupt my bank account, to interrupt my set amount that I've already decided to give God, but God may call me to do something different. God may call me to give more. That's what generosity is. It's almost the even more effort that Jesus was fully focused on his plan, but he was willing to do even more if it helps somebody else. That's what this generosity is. It's, it's, and some of the most exciting moments in your life have come in unexpected interruptions as well. Some of the most meaningful conversations and circumstances and developments in your life have come in those unexpected interruptions when life took you a different direction. I actually opened this question up to our Facebook group just to hear from you guys a few stories. And I'm not going to call out names or anything. So I appreciate those of you that did answer. And we had some really good answers of just, hey, I can think of interruptions that God used. And in the moment, I was scared. But God absolutely used us to get like our family to a better place. And some of you talked about how COVID a year ago was a drastic interruption for all of us and how you had to, like, your job looked different. And you know what? It doesn't mean that, hey, everybody's in a better place now. But God used that interruption in some way. Some of you, like you're living in a different place now than you thought you would, and it began with an interruption. Some of you are in a different job than, than you ever thought you'd be in. And maybe you were in a job you loved before, and for whatever reason, you got let go, or there was a reorg, or you had to move, and all of a sudden you had to leave that behind. It was an interruption. 
And a lot of us, we can think of like, wow, at the time, panicked, but look what it led to. And that's what it means to be generous in our lives back to God, is we're being open. God's saying, if you, if you want to interrupt me with something better than what I have planned, I want to have that kind of posture. So how available are you for interruptions just, just in your day, just throughout your week? It doesn't mean you can't be busy. I am. But how open are you? I know my wife, Katie, is far better at this than I am, that, that she's not in a rush like I am. And, and I read stories like this, and it, and it convicts me because I think, man, it's so easy for me to just move too quick. And often, God, the Holy Spirit, wants to work in our lives slowly and patiently, and we just run right by those interruptions. How much do you allow for interruptions or unexpected charges in your own budget or lack of budget for some of us, right? Um, There's a lot of us that, if we're being frank, we're in debt, we're living um, above our means, and that might be because of something that happened years ago that you're still paying off. It may just be you live in a pattern of, of accruing more and more debt, and the first thing, if you want to get out of that, that you have to do is create a monthly budget. And I'll say this, and start giving to God. Because God will not bless disobedience. And followers of Jesus, just to be honest, the minimum threshold, he says, if you want to be blessed financially, then I want you to put me first. And I want you to show your allegiance even during hard time. And that means you give your first fruits, which in the Bible is our first 10%, the first portion back to God. And what you're doing by that is because of your obedience in your finances, you are for the first time allowing God to bless that area. God's not going to bless an area of your life that's disobedient. So until you do that, God's not going to bless your finances. Now, there's a lot of rich people out there that don't have anything to do with Jesus, so I'm not saying that you're going to be rich because of that. It has nothing to do with that. It means you have not invited God into that area of your life. And that comes back to how open you are to putting God first and being generous back to Him. Does that make sense? It's leaving margin, leaving margin in your daily schedule and your weekly schedule for interruptions, leaving margin in your budget. In fact, there's a great book on this called margin. (laughs) That's a fantastic book that I read, and it just says, never be too busy that you don't have margins. Because I can think of a conversation I had this past week that I know for the other person that called me, it was the most significant moment of their week. And it's because I left space in between meetings to call them for 20 minutes. But if I'm just going, 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 we don't get these water-to-wine moments. that's, That's the heart behind this story. Because God loves to work in those moments. And the John 2 miracle, it's an even more above and beyond miracle that Jesus gives. That they are even, they're even more than what God's path for his ministry is. But the even more moments, that's what made Jesus the most generous, the greatest giver to ever live. And I want to show another story of one of Jesus' followers and how she modeled this in the same way because she learned it from Jesus. In John chapter 12, where Mary shows a beautiful act of generosity to Jesus. Now, this isn't Mary, his mother. This is another Mary that became one of the most passionate followers of Jesus that have all these amazing stories. This is, this is maybe the story that captures her heart the best. And here's what it says in John chapter 12, verse 1. It says, six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man that he had raised from the dead. A dinner was being prepared in Jesus's honor. Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. 
And back then they ate, uh, they didn't sit at a table as much. So by the way, the Lord's Supper, um, it would not have happened at a table. It would have been reclining on the floor. And they kind of used couches and they were very relaxed. It was a very casual moment. And so, and this, they're just kind of sitting around. Lazarus is probably having like a side conversation. He's like, hey, I used to be dead, you know. It's like, really? Yeah, four days. No, I'm fine now. Awesome, good for you, man. So just having this casual conversation. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard, which most of you have no idea what that means. I'll explain that in a minute. And she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance. Because remember, these are small little houses, and this expensive, powerful perfume is just radiating among the house. And as they're just sitting there and they're casually talking, Mary's at, at Jesus' feet and wiping his feet with this expensive perfume. And this, this perfume, when I say expensive, it wasn't like, that would have been like 150 bucks today. No, this was an expensive imported perfume. This would have been her most prized expensive possession. Theological historians believe that it would have been equivalent of a year's salary so about, for, for, for Mary, about $30,000. I don't know where you get a bottle of perfume like that, but she had one. And, and almost recklessly is pouring this out on Jesus' feet. Why? Because she just loved Jesus so much. And in a good way, she got caught up so much in, in his love that she wasn't worried about, oh, is this going to wreck my Jewish budget? She didn't care. Because, because when you love someone deeply, it compels you to become more generous. You don't, you don't worry about the cost. You worry about the love. That's what we're seeing in this moment. It reminds me, um, when I lived in a dorm in college, there was a guy who was just, a guy named Mark. He was head over heels for this girl. And just, you know, it was like one of those things where he liked her for months, but he'd never tell her. It's an interesting strategy, right? And, um, and so after like several weeks, we're like, why don't you just ask her on a date? She's like, oh, she'll never say no. But we'll talk about it for hours. And I'm like, this is weird. Just ask her. So he finally asked her, and she said yes. And he was so excited because he was just smitten with this girl that on their very first date, he took her to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse and dropped 120 bucks on dinner. Which for me, I'm like, that's a bold strategy because the bar has been set now. Like, date two, you can't take her to Taco Bell. She'll be like, what did I do wrong? I thought you liked me, and now we're here. So he, he was like, he came back, and he just bragged. He sat, I remember he came into my dorm, and he sat in my recliner chair, and there were a few of us in there. He's like, well, guys, great night. Dropped 120 bucks on dinner. We're like, what? We're like these poor college students. We're like, that's like a month of eating for us. Like, what are you doing? He's like, man, I just wanted to show her how much I cared. And she knew. I mean, she broke up with him a week later, but she'll never forget <laughs> that he dropped 120 bucks on that first date, right? Because when you love somebody that much, it just compels you. And that's what we're seeing with Mary here. She just loves Jesus so much that it doesn't matter the ramifications. Like, like being generous, it, it's, it's, what is generosity? It's giving even more. Like there is no cap to it. There's no end to it because as my love for Jesus grows, so does my generosity. It, it, just like my love for Katie, as that grows, it's not like, well, I've, I think I've shown her enough. I can cut her off for the rest of the month. And you know what? We're just going to do separate bank accounts from here on out. Like when you love somebody, there's just, there's a beautiful outpouring of love without the worry of what you're going to get in return or if you're going to be okay, right? That's the picture that we get here, that if you truly want to be known by your love for Jesus, it's reflected in your generosity and how generous you are 
with your own schedule, but, but even with your own bank account, and how much you're willing to give to God. Because again, it goes back to, we're willing to be interrupted for the things that we prioritize more. So how much should I give to God to show my generosity? Even more. Mary had every right to say, I've shown him enough. But she loved him so much, she just didn't ever want to stop because she just loved him. So Mary loves Jesus so much, and the fragrance of, uh, of the, like her love, it fills the room, which is like a, a beautiful kind of symbolic that you could smell her love. Like everyone's like, what is that? It's like, oh, that's Mary showing how much she loves Jesus. The perfume is strong and powerful. It's this beautiful moment. And then, and then the negative voice comes in. This always happens in Jesus' story, right? Beautiful, and then the descending voice. So then the negative voice comes in, and it's the same negative voice that right now, in this room, in your ear, gets annoyed that we talk about generosity. It's the same negative voice that, that, that is frustrated at this. It's the same negative voice that tells you you're doing enough. It's the same negative voice that tells you you're all in enough, even though there's parts of your life that you're holding too tightly to. It's the same negative voice that's speaking against all of this, that makes this so hard for so many of us. It's the same voice that Satan will do everything he can to compel you to less generosity. He just wants to hold you back. And here's what the voice says here. Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, The perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. And side note, by the way, the kind of people who make comments like this, who hop on Facebook and complain that celebrities are spending too much and they should be giving to the poor, those are usually the ones who aren't giving anything to the poor, right? Like they're saying it for self-righteous reason because generous people are less focused on what other people are doing with their money and more focused on how they can make a bigger impact with their money. So it's set out of insecurity. So I just wanted to shut down any Facebook warriors that are bashing a bunch of people for how they spend their money. You aren't going to be held accountable for how somebody else spends their money. You're going to be held accountable for how generous you are. And that's even what John says here about Judas in verse 6. He says, not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Here's how Jesus replies to him. Leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. And again, they have no idea what he's talking to, but this is just days before he's going to be arrested and killed. You'll always have the poor among you, but you not always have me. Saying this is an opportunity that she gets to show her generosity to me. And your generosity to God will never be returned void. So Mary saw an opportunity to do even more. Did she have to? No. But she wanted to because she loved him. She wanted to live with the same generosity that Jesus had, and the only way she could reach that level is by doing even more. So what does your generosity reflect about your own love for God right now? If you're just being honest, this isn't to make you feel guilty. It's just a self-assessment. Because I look at Mary and I think, man, I want to be at a place that I'm so focused on following Jesus and following his mission that I'm not even worried about the ramifications. Because I know, I know this, if you're laser-focused on Jesus' mission, he will take care of the rest. You don't have to worry about the rest. He always does, and he always has in my own life. Even in those scary moments where I'm like, I don't know how this is going to add up. And then God interrupts, because I left room for interruptions in my own life. For Mary, her radical generosity showed that she was head over heels. What about yours? 
If you're not giving anything to God, if you're not giving any of your time, if you're not giving any of your finances to God, what it reflects is you're not really all in. If you're giving some, it means that Jesus, he's there, but he's probably not the top priority. If you are giving what God has asked you to give, the first fruits, that's great. That's awesome. That means you are now at a place that God can bless you because he's going to bless health, not unhealth. And I'm just encouraging you to look for opportunities to do even more, just like Mary did. Because it's actually in those moments that we actually get even more excited. Not because we're giving out of compulsion or because we have to, because God asks us to, but it's those moments that we're even more excited to give. So just get to 10% and see what God does with your heart. And think about the same concept with your time. Leaving space for interruptions. Do you need to leave more space to be interrupted by God each week? Because Jesus was the greatest giver of all time. And as followers, he calls us to be the greatest givers of our time. And like Mary, you should be known for your generosity. Because if Jesus was the greatest giver and I want to follow him and I want to reflect him, then that's how I should be known as well, as somebody who's just generous with my life. So how can you be more interruptible in your life and your finances? I want to give uh, just three quick tips that I would give to anybody, and then we'll close. Okay, so if you're not writing anything down or if you're asleep, that's fine. But I just want to, I want to share three things, and I would encourage you to write this down because at least one of these might be helpful for you. Even if you're crushing this, one of these might be really helpful. The first one is this. Leave margin. Leave margin in your time and your budget. And your budget... It's what, what's called a contingency budget. If you guys have ever done the Dave Ramsey budgeting or any other, it's, it's for the other stuff that you didn't plan for. So you need to replace your brakes. Well, you probably didn't budget to replace your brakes, but you're leaving space for the other charges. But even more so, you're leaving space for generosity. You're not saying, well, we're already giving to this, so we're all tied up. You're actually leaving space for generosity. Or you're, actually, you're, you're setting aside money just to be more generous with. Same with your schedule, that you're leaving space throughout your day. So if you're busy like me and I have meeting, 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 I'm not going to do a meeting at 12, meeting at 1, meeting at 2. I'm going to leave space between them so that I can, uh, if, a, if a meeting goes long, there's space for that. If there's, a, if there's a conversation that happens in between, there's space for that. So the first one, leave margin. The, the second one, walk slowly. What I mean is literally walk slowly. Like if you work in an office or you're in a classroom, you're on campus, try not to get there late to where you're always running to the next meeting but actually walk slowly through the hallways because it's in those little conversations that people feel connected with, right? So walk slowly through your life. Don't always be in a rush because when you're in a rush, you, you don't have time for interruptions. So leave margin, walk slowly. The third one is be present. Be fully present. Jesus was always fully present in every moment. Didn't matter how busy he was. Always looking for opportunities to make a difference in the lives of the people around him. See, I hope that you have the kind of life of generosity that Mary was known for. And I hope that the way you live your life is, is so powerful that it's almost like the perfume in the room. That people are like, man, when I think of Mary, I think of generosity. When I think of Stephen, I think of somebody who's just generous, who's just, who's just generosity is just spelling out of them, not for my own glory and for my own fame, but to make a difference in their lives. So Jesus was the greatest giver of all time and he wants us to be that too. Not only with our wallets, but with our time, with our energy, with our passion. So let's pray for that. God, I thank you. I thank you, God, that you are a generous God, Lord, and that 
you allow us to make a difference. And that's what this is all about. Lord, there's uh, a lot of people in this room that are here because of the generosity of other people in this room. And to be honest, they would not be here if not for the generosity of somebody else in this room. God, that's the end game, and that's what excites me, to want to give even more to you, God. I pray that we can be a people that are known for our radical generosity just as you are, God. I pray that we can be people that are known uh, with, as people who live their lives with open hands, with open schedules, looking for ways that you might want to show up that we didn't plan for. God, I pray that we have the same posture that Mary had, that, God, we can lift things up to you and say, God, I don't know how to fix this, so whatever you say, whatever you think is best, I trust you with it, God. Lord, I thank you that we get to gather, that we get to open your word, God, and I pray that we walk out encouraged just knowing how generous of a God you are. We pray this in your name. Amen.